Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome Timothy Litton, who is the Albert and Angela Ferrone Distinguished Professor of Law at the Albany Law School, where he teaches torts, administrative law, legislation, and regulatory law and policy. He holds undergraduate and law degrees from Yale University, has spent some time um, lecturing at Harvard, and has written a number of very influential and interesting books in issues of law. Uh, among them are a book that called Holding Bishops Accountable, How Lawsuits Help the Catholic Church Confront Clergy Sexual Abuse, published by Harvard University Press. And he has a forthcoming book, also to be published by Harvard Press, called Can You Believe It's Kosher? Trust, Reputation, and Private Regulation in the Age of Industrial Food. We'll be talking about that book in a subsequent podcast, but in this, we're going to be talking about the role of litigation in social change. So welcome, Tim. I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Now, you've had uh, a lot of experience in the litigation area, and you've thought a lot, I know, about tobacco litigation, gun litigation, and then new forms of it that might apply, say, in the food arena. And I know it's a complicated issue, and I'd like to talk through some of these issues about whether it's a helpful strategy for thinking about social change. So could we do some, some case studies, for example, looking at the clergy abuse, perhaps, and then the gun control area? And I know you have intimate um, awareness of both, the, both those fields and how they compare to one another and how one might have been successful and the other one not, et cetera. Sure. I think when you think about using litigation as a regulatory strategy, you have to try and figure out what are the uses that it might have in the overall mix of institutions, including public agencies and law enforcement. Clergy sexual abuse litigation actually offers probably the best example of how private lawsuits brought by victims of injury against um, their injurers in private uh, litigation had a huge impact on public policy in the area of child protection. So prior to 1984, while there was widespread clergy sexual abuse we now know going on within the Catholic Church to the tune of uh, 15,000 victims, very little was known about this outside of the church. And in fact, newspapers would not cover the story for fear of political repercussions. Prosecutors and police departments would not deal with these stories, and it certainly wasn't on anybody's legislative agenda on the state or federal level. It wasn't until in 1984 when plaintiff's attorneys started to file these lawsuits that we began to learn more information about clergy sexual abuse. And the private lawsuits really had three important implications for public policy. The first thing that private lawsuits did is that they framed the issue as one of institutional uh, an institutional problem with the need for institutional reform. Many people dealt with child sexual abuse and clergy sexual abuse in particular as having to do with particular rogue priests or pedophile priests, when in fact what really the tort suits contributed was this idea that the real problem in clergy sexual abuse was the failure of the institution to respond properly to these incidents. So tort law in private litigation is a very useful way to frame issues in institutional terms and to look for institutional solutions. So a question I have about that is, um, if you would have asked me when these lawsuits began, that is when they started appearing in the press, and I was getting my information that way, I would have guessed it was far after 1984. So these actually go back a lot longer than I thought. Uh, did they? What, what, what took so long for them to become more public knowledge? Well, there were waves of litigation. There was litigation in 1984, and then it continued on. There was another peak of litigation with the Porter case in 1992. The Porter case involved a priest out of Boston 
who molested over 200 victims, and then the Gagan case in 2002 when these became front page news. But in fact, in 1984 and again in 1992 and in 2002, this litigation hit the front pages of the newspapers and there was international attention to this particular problem. So clergy sexual abuse cycled through these three stages of the litigation. So it became more and more to be considered an institutional problem within the church and not just a problem of dealing with individual priests in a criminal matter. Okay, so when you refer to these as being a successful use of litigation, um, I'm assuming what you mean by successful is it brought attention to the problem, it created change within the institution of the church, that's protected right. victims got them some and compensation. That's right, and the way it did that is, is that it, as I said, it framed this as an institutional issue, so people looked at institutional solutions. The second thing it did is, in the discovery process of civil litigation, it dug out information that had not been disclosed before. The Catholic Church was not forthcoming with this information, and public officials were unwilling to unearth it. And it wasn't until plaintiff's attorneys went into discovery that they were able to unearth this information. And the third thing it did that really had a big impact is it put it on the agenda of law enforcement and public agencies and legislatures so that public officials then started to deal with this. And even more importantly, on the public policy agenda of the Catholic Church itself, who started to take more and more measures to deal with the problem. So what you have is litigation in some sense jump-starting the rest of the policy institutions that were involved. And in the absence of litigation, I think it's very unlikely that any of this would have come to light or that we would have seen the widespread reform within the Catholic Church that we've seen since 2002. So I'd love to hear your um, explanation of the history of gun litigation and tell us where that went and then go back and compare these two case studies, the clergy and the guns, to see how the conditions, set of social conditions were different and where they went turned up in a much different place. Sure. The gun litigation really got rolling in the early 1980s when gun violence victims started bringing civil lawsuits not against their shooters, but instead, or in addition, against the manufacturers of the guns. And the claims were that the manufacturer of the guns bore responsibility for these shootings because they were marketing in their guns in ways that were um, irresponsible. So I can give you one example. The federal law requires that every gun that's sold be sold with a serial number on the gun and that the person buying it has to have, um, the person selling it has to have a federal firearms license, has to be a federal firearms licensee. Well, there was a company out of Arkansas that sold gun kits. What they did is they would sell you all the spare parts needed in order to make an entire gun, except for the receiver of the gun, which is where the serial number would go. And so they sold these out of a warehouse with no background checks, without a federal firearms license, and with no serial number. And they sold many of these guns, several of which ended up being used in drive-by shootings. The victims in one of these drive-by shootings brought a lawsuit against the gun manufacturer, and they claimed that it was careless or negligent to distribute guns in this fashion. So gun litigation basically was private lawsuits brought by gun violence victims against industry, and the claim was that the, injury, the industry is irresponsibly distributing their weapons in ways that lead or facilitate gun crimes. And then where did that go? Did, did that create much change over time? Well, I think that what could be said in favor of gun litigation is, is it did, once again, frame this as an institutional issue. For the first time in gun control debates in America, people started to focus on gun manufacturers and distribution networks. On the other hand, it created an enormous backlash, and the form of that backlash was that states around the country, about 35 states, and eventually the federal government, were so upset by the thought of blaming companies for street violence that they granted the industry immunity from lawsuits, from these types of personal injury lawsuits for misuse of their weapons. And as a result, I think we got very little policy change out of all this litigation after a lot of money was spent. You don't see in the same kind of policy activity going on in wake of the litigation that you did with clergy sexual abuse. And I think a major difference was that when gun litigation came on the scene, there was already a very long-running and robust public policy debate going on in 
prosecutors' offices and legislatures and administrative agencies. Whereas in clergy sexual abuse, there was this deafening silence. And litigation tends to be very good at sort of jump-starting the policymaking process and getting other institutions off the dime and getting them moving. But if things are already moving, they're just not moving in the direction that you would like, it's not clear that litigation is always a very effective strategy. And the problems with it are is that it chews up an enormous amount of time and energy and doesn't necessarily produce shifts in policy that people are looking for. So these two cases you presented, the clergy on one hand, which created massive social change in some ways, and the, the gun litigation, which created less change, um, differ from one another probably in a number of ways, but one of the ones is what you just suggested, whether there was robust debate on the issue or whether there was silence on the issue. Are there other things that distinguish those two case studies that might be instructive in thinking with other issues, whether litigation might be a tool? Well, I think one thing that they actually have in common that would be instructive for other cases is both of them were able to tell stories that were of interest to the broad public so that there is general interest in gun violence and there's a widespread social concern about it. And the same is true with child sexual abuse. And so in some sense, litigation needs to plug in to an already salient theme in the culture. But it needs to plug into an already salient theme that's not being dealt with by public policy institutions in an effective manner. So there needs to be concern at one point, but also silence in a way. And the lawsuits are able to sort of mobilize that concern in some way to generate press coverage and widespread public concern to create pressure on these institutions and to generate the information necessary for these institutions to begin to look at regulatory solutions. Well, let's talk about the application of this knowledge into the food arena. And I'll be interested to get your opinion on whether you think food-related issues, such as obesity or the diseases caused by poor diet, more closely mimic what, what went on with the sexual abuse in the clergy versus the guns and whether litigation can become a potentially useful tool here. What do you think about that? I think one would want to be cautious independent of what the legal theory is, to make sure that the litigation is likely to uncover, uncover information that we don't already have. If there already exists this information, then discovery in civil litigation is a costly way to uncover information that we probably already know. So what type of information would become relevant then if it were uncovered? Well, for instance, in clergy sexual abuse, we had no idea that the individual victims came forward were part of a much larger phenomenon that had been systematically studied and covered up by the Catholic Church. In gun litigation, much of the information that we uncovered was already known, but there were certain things that were unknown. So gun litigation is really a mixed bag. One of the things that they uncovered is that there was knowledge within the industry of the siphoning off of weapons through distribution channels into the black market. The question would be, what type of information does one believe the food industry is that we don't know about the food industry, and um, why don't we know it? So if it's already the case that government agencies or the scientific community is already developing the kind of understanding of how the industry works that we would want to find, it's not clear that it's worth going into litigation to use civil discovery to do that. If, on the other hand, one believes that there are reasons to think that these public agencies or the scientific community really doesn't have access to information and that the industry is unwilling to bring it forward, then civil discovery is really a way to, you know, use a crowbar to get it out. So you're, you're sort of moving toward thinking about litigation in 
in having at least two possible outcomes. One would be the discovery of information that would occur in, during the process of a lawsuit, which you've now talked about. The other would be the possible changes that the industry might have to bring about as a consequence of the lawsuit. That's right. And it's probably important to point out that many people think that the real key to the change that lawsuits bring about is a final verdict or damages, when in fact it's the case that most of the clergy sexual abuse cases that were brought never went to trial. Only, four, only a dozen of them ever made it to a jury. And the same is true in gun litigation. The real policy influence occurs in the litigation process itself through the framing of the issue in the, in the complaint period, the discovery period, and the press coverage that these two parts of the litigation generate to create public pressure to put it on the agenda of public policy makers in public institutions. So I think one needs to think not so much about whether or not one's going to likely to win a particular verdict, but that one goes into litigation with a plausible theory of what it is the industry's doing wrong, with the idea that discovery's likely to, un to reveal information about that wrongdoing that we don't already know and that's not likely to be forthcoming in other institutional attempts to regulate. Well, it's interesting to see that the process which is occurring in a courtroom or in discussions between attorneys is highly affected by how the press chooses to cover it. Yes, and in fact, press coverage has been key to the effectiveness of litigation. It turns out that many of the things that make for a good tort claim, which is a serious injury, a clear story about who's in the right and who's in the wrong, a high level of damages, and salient, well-known characters who you know can fulfill a civil judgment, actually are the same things that make a story newsworthy. And the Catholic clergy sexual abuse story was a perfect combination of those. It was a story that was ripe for press coverage. And litigation also has the advantage of creating episodes, just like your favorite television series, so that every time there's a new motion or a new pleading or a new trial stage, it generates another round of, of press coverage. That's one way that the public views of these things get changed by the framing and also create pressure for um, creating, a, making these agenda items on uh, in public policy. Well, thank you. It'll be very interesting to see where this goes in the future in the context of all the concerns about food and industry behavior and things like that, whether litigation will be a player or not. But you've helped frame the issue in a very interesting way and give it, given us some historical precedent to frame this against. So I appreciate that. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So our guest was Timothy Litton, the Albert and Angela Ferrone Distinguished Professor of Law at the Albany Law School. Please uh, visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, where you'll find a variety of resources on food policy, including a free email newsletter that goes out bi-weekly, and also a list of other podcasts from excellent guests who have visited the Rudd Center. Thank you.